Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Chibundu Onizo on her second novel, Welcome to Lagos, and then Alexandra Kleeman's debut novel, You Too Can Have a Body Like Mine. Chibundu Onizo was born in Lagos, Nigeria in 1991. Her first novel, The Spider King's Daughter, won a Betty Trask Award was shortlisted for the Dylan Thomas Prize and the Commonwealth Book Prize and was longlisted for the Desmond Elliott Prize and the Etisalat Prize for Literature. She is completing a PhD on the West African Students' Union at King's College London and Chibundu's latest novel, Welcome to Lagos, we're going to talk about today. Welcome to Little Atoms, Chibundu. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So tell us what Welcome to Lagos is about, first of all. Okay, so it's about two soldiers who are posted to the Niger Delta in Nigeria. That's the oil-rich region. And they're giving an order they disagree with. And so they desert. And they desert the army and they run off to Lagos because it's a good place to hide. And they pick up a lot of other people along the way and they kind of form a band. And then when they get to Lagos, they have adventures. So this is your second novel. Mm-hmm. And the first one was written when you was 21. Published, um, published when he was 21, of course, so obviously written before that, um, which is an achievement in itself, obviously, but then I read out all of those long listings <laughs> and prizes and stuff. What was that like, the reception to that first novel? Well, I mean, I didn't really know what to expect. Um, I didn't really have any friends who were writers before I got published, so everything was new. Some of it was overwhelming, especially interviews, and especially panel interviews where you know, you kind of always felt the other person was, well, I always felt the other person was talking a lot more sophisticatedly than I was. Um, and so, and often I was the youngest, probably still am in a lot of things I go for, but it's, it, I'm getting old enough for this to be like writers my age now. But when I was 21, it was literally like I was coming from lectures and then I would just be on a panel with kind of older people and they'd be so erudite and they'd just know how to run on and I just give this one word answer. It's like, yes, no, maybe. <laughs> so how did that affect the writing of this book? When you went into this book, how did that sort of experience shape it, if at all? No, it didn't really shape it at all. I think in the personal aspect of Chibundu, I've just 
kind of gotten better at public speaking. But in the writing aspect, you know, all that stuff doesn't really matter. It's just mm-hmm. you and your laptop or your piece of paper or whatever. And you just get on with it. But what about in terms of the, you know, the style of the first novel? What mm-hmm. did you learn in writing and publishing a novel that helped you with the second one? Hmm. What did I learn? I think the biggest lesson was that I could do it. I could finish um, and so The Spider King's Daughter was the first novel I'd finished. I'd had many other projects before that I'd started and had never finished. And so when I wrote The Spider King's Daughter and finished it, so with Welcome to Lagos, it took a, a longer period of time to write. But even when, you know, I couldn't see quite how I would finish, I just knew I could. And I think knowing you can is actually really helpful. So I read that the, the inspiration, the start of the inspiration for this book came in a dream. Mm-hmm. It does sound incredibly mystical, airy, fairy, away with the fairies, in fact. And it did come in a dream. So I had read Amita of Gosha's Sea of Poppies, which has an ensemble cast, and I really enjoyed it. And I finished reading it and thought, you know, I want to write a book like this, but I had no subject matter. I want to write a book with a large cast of characters, but I didn't know on what or what the topic would be. And so, yes, then I had this dream, starting with two soldiers. The scene that I dreamt didn't eventually make it into the book, but I wrote the dream down, which was rare, but it was such a vivid dream. So I wrote it down, and then while I was writing it down, then the rest of the plot kind of came, what if another character joins and another character joins and another character joins. And I was like, wonderful, I have my band. But it was a bit less simple than that because obviously at the beginning, I wanted a band of like 25 people and it was just completely unmanageable. Um, and then I just had to kind of kill off, not even my darlings, they just, they, they weren't my darlings, but they were my idea. I had to kill off parts of my idea. But even so, there's, there's seven main characters yes. you end up with and that's still an ensemble, it's still mm-hmm. more than there was in the first book. So how, how is that challenge different, writing multiple characters? Um, so I was doing two things that were new. I was writing from the third person, which I'd never tried before, actually. I've always slipped into the third person, um, into the first person, into the I voice. I, that came very naturally, especially because I keep a journal. And I, and I kept one throughout my teenage years. I don't keep it as religiously anymore. So... I wanted to try the third person, so that was the first challenge. And it was very difficult for me to find the voice, the third person voice I wanted to use. And like finding the writing voice, especially with this novel, it's like one of those movies where you know there's a there's a hidden door. So there's a bookshop or whatever, and you've seen someone pass through it, so you know there's a door there, mm-hmm. but you don't know what exactly to press or push. So it's kind of like you just knock, 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 and finally you find the hollow place, and then you push through into the voice you want. Um, so there are definitely lots of rewrites, lots of just writing and writing and knowing it wasn't right and it wasn't sounding like what I wanted it to sound like, but still going forward, hoping I would break into the voice I wanted. And yeah, eventually it just finally fell into place. And then I had to go back and rewrite everything in the third person voice I finally found. So I said seven characters, mm-hmm. but Lagos itself, we could say, is, is another character novel. And mm-hmm. certainly not all of the book, but the majority of the book is set in the city of Lagos. You were born there, mm-hmm. but you came to England, were you 14? Yes, 14. So what do you remember of Lagos growing up as a child? What do I remember? Um, so I grew up when Nigeria still had a military rule. So I guess most days 
It was just like any other childhood, whatever, going to school, coming back, etc., etc. But what remains vividly in my memory is the strikes that happened. And they didn't happen all the time. So most of the time it was normal, but because they were kind of out of the ordinary and they were very vivid. So I remember sometimes you'd go to school and because the school hadn't found a way to get it to my parents, that school was shut. And my parents are like the most diehard. So unless Nigeria is at war with Ghana, you are going to school. So we would drive to school and the whole roads would be empty and then we get there and school would be shut and then we go back home. And I remember actually liking those days. I mean there's a lot of chaos going on on around. And then looking back on my childhood, there were many seminal moments of like political unrest and political turmoil that just completely kind of passed over my head. I was just having fun, going to my friends' houses, playing, that kind of thing. You still have family there. What was it like to return as a visitor? What sort of perspective do you have on the country when you when you return into it as a visitor rather than someone who lives there? I mean I don't really feel like a visitor because my parents live there obviously I know it's not the same. In theory, in my head, I know it's not the same. But in practice, I don't feel like a visitor. I go back, we still live in the same house. My parents are still there. So there's that really serious sense of continuity um, with my childhood. I still stay in the same room. So those things have kind of stayed the same. But I think you get more exasperated and more frustrated more easily, especially like kind of in the first week. And then you're like, you need to chill or else you're going to have a heart attack. <laughs> you need to learn to deal with all the kind of random stuff that just happens in Lagos and obsess your plans or, you know, you're sitting in traffic for two hours. You just need to learn to let it slide and then it's fine. Well, I guess slightly rephrasing that then, what about as a writer? Obviously, <laughs> the last few times you would have gone back during the writing of this book, you probably had the, an eye on what was going to go in the book. Hmm. Yes, I did, definitely. Um, so with The Spider King's Daughter, I remember I got a review in a Nigerian national newspaper that pointed out a factual inaccuracy and then used that factual inaccuracy to extrapolate and say that I had lost touch with Nigeria, which really stung. <laughs> and so with this novel, I was aware of that, of wanting to do research. Obviously, all the research in the world cannot capture a city of 15 million people, but I wanted it. I went, definitely went back with my eyes kind of open, not to just passively move through Lagos, to look. The city itself, I mean, you, you obviously have affection for it, and that comes from in the book, but you mm. certainly don't romanticise it. Mm. What's it like? Can you sum up what, what it's like? Energy. Very energetic. And sometimes almost a frenzied type of energy, but... You kind of need that energy to survive in Lagos. And I think that's one thing when you do visit and you come back, you're just like tired. <laughs> um, you know, you're always going somewhere, always. And going somewhere is just never a straightforward process of moving from A to B. You know, there can be numerous things that happen along the way. <laughs> Yeah, this is Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. I'm talking to Jibundu Onozu. And we're talking about Welcome to Lagos. 
I want to talk about the characters in the book then, and as we look at each of the characters that make up the ensemble, we'll look at other aspects of Nigerian life in Lagos as we go. And so Chike and Yemi are the, the two soldiers. Um, tell us, who are they? They're, they're different ranks for a start. They have an interesting dynamic between them. Yeah, so Chike is an officer and Yemi is an other rank. I didn't actually really understand this about the army. It's the same here, it's same in many countries. So you have the officer class and you have the other ranks and the other ranks can never cross into the officer officer class, which I found really surprising. So you can get promoted up to a certain extent as an other rank, but you can never become an officer, which, yeah, I found quite shocking. So, yeah, so they do have this dynamic of one being the leader and the other the follower, and then they get to Lagos, and they're not in the army anymore. And then the chain of command is kind of preserved, but then at the same time the city opens the possibility of them having a more kind of equal friendship. And so... They're in the, the Niger Delta at the mm-hmm. beginning. Why are they there? So this is kind of the factual accuracy part. So there were soldiers in the Niger Delta in the 2000s, and this was because of the militancy crisis. So people from the region that produce oil, many people, and not only from there, actually, all over Nigeria, this can also be a sentiment that people feel that the people who live in their region do not benefit from the oil. However, some groups in that region then decided to take up arms against the state. Um, And they would sabotage oil pipelines, they would kidnap. They would do a list of things, partly to further their cause, partly to further their personal interests, as often happens in this kind of freedom-fighting grey area. Um, So yeah, the army was posted to the Niger Delta, and so that bit of the book is just, yeah, close to what actually happened. And what sort of kicks off their journey to Lagos is, although we don't see it, but is a massacre. And this is, again, this is based on a real event. Yes, it is based on a real event. So, I don't remember the year again. It's early 2000s. There was a massacre in Odi, in Bielsa State. Very similar to what happens in the book. Um, Two soldiers were killed by militants, suspected militants. And the alleged suspected killers ran into the Odi community and hid among the civilian population. And the army went in and destroyed the whole town. So Odi is definitely, from what I've read about it, it's bigger than the village in my book. So, yeah, it's based on a real event. And so they're going to, they basically desert. And why would they be safe in Lagos? Why head to Lagos? Well, I think it's because Lagos can provide anonymity um, you know, there's 15 million people. Records aren't that great. So um, my cousin was telling me about one of her employees. Um, well, not her employee, actually. So her husband's company, one of the company's employees, ran away with the equivalent of about £2,000 and just disappeared. And this is in Lagos. He just disappeared into somewhere in Lagos, you know, moved on, changed his name, probably got in a new job. Um, and that's the end of that. Um, so yeah, Lagos is a good place to, to disappear. And... Well, certainly Chike is an officer, but he's also, he also has a degree in zoology. But that's useless to them once they get to Lagos. There are scenes of them trying to find work mm. without references, without papers. So what is the, the sort of employment situation like for the people that find themselves in that situation? It's tough. I mean, unemployment is high in Nigeria, especially youth unemployment. It is high or it's, getting, it's rising all over the world. But in Nigeria, it is high. And people have to be creative. Um, so you have a lot of young people becoming entrepreneurs, starting their own businesses, 
really on very very tiny budgets but um if there's no work you know people create their own jobs the next two members of their of the group mm-hmm. the first two that they come across and pick up fine boy who's he's not strictly a militant but he's certainly hanging mm. out with with the militants and a young woman i soaken mm. um let's talk about fine boy first of all so why is he there why is he there that's the thing so I just kept adding and adding and adding people to this group. So, like, in the first, like, every chapter, like, a new person would come. And then eventually, like, you know, they were thrown out and, like, only the strongest survived. It was, like, X Factor. So, you know, we had a singing, they had a sing-off and only the strongest survived. Um, so, yeah, Fanboy was one of the stronger characters, very vivid. And I just liked his kind of hustling spirit and also just... You never know how much to trust him, you know, but he's very personable. So he's, as I said, you've already mentioned what was the, what the soldiers were doing in the, in the Niger Delta, and obviously the militants that, you know, were there in, in the sort of oil fields. He's grown up in that situation mm. where, you know, everything, the food and the water is yeah. tainted by oil. So I only know as much as what you read, kind of the photographs you see, but I think it's... What's interesting is how people have had to change their lives. So for in many of these communities, for generations and generations and generations, their parents have been fishermen, their grandfathers have been fishermen, their great-grandfathers have been fishermen, and these skills... And then suddenly you're in a world where the only skill you've been kind of raised to expect is gone. And you don't have, an, you don't have enough of an education to make your way in this new modern world of telephone companies and all that kind of stuff. And, and this is what Fineboy is trying to do. He's trying to enter that other world of glamour and radio that someone from where he's from, it would be very difficult for them to get into that world. Yeah, we should say he wants to be a radio presenter. Yes, he wants to be a radio presenter. And he has the accent to prove all the world. He, he attempts the accent. So the, an American accent is an essential part of being a radio host in Nigeria. Not on all stations, but on quite a few. It's quite annoying when you turn on the radio and it's like, Hi guys, welcome to Lagos FM 93.7. Call back. It's like, what is going on? (laughs) And so, Isoka and the girl, these two have, to begin with, certainly Mm -hmm. a quite a fraught relationship. Mm -hmm. So where does she come into the story? They're wandering through the bush. You know, she makes an entrance um, from a tree. Um... She's close to, she's closest to my age of actually maybe fine boys close to my age as well. But I think and this is why these characters survived. It was like good to have like a balance of ages, of experiences, and also of kind of like aspirations, you know, so it's okay, hasn't gone to university. Whereas someone like Chike is further along in his life and Oma is even further along in her kind of life. So yeah, it's part of balance. she hasn't been to university, but what I really love about her second is she's She's like basically literally been reading the dictionary. She's mm. really verbose. Yes, and there's like that's like a mastery of English is like it's a social marker in Nigeria. I mean it's a social marker everywhere, okay. It's a social marker. But I mean here sometimes there's also accent as well. But accent is important. But still there's this um kind of cachet that you get from being able to just 
roll off these multi-syllable words, you know, discombobulate, paraphernalia, perambulate, you know, like, you know, there's one very popular Nigerian politician who has literally become famous just from the fact that he doesn't use any words under five syllables. Like, literally, he doesn't go to the toilet. He defecates. Defecates is too short. He... Food passes through his alimentary canal, and you get my point. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so the, the the fifth member of this group, mm-hmm. um, Omar. Yes. So she's a, a middle class housewife mm-hmm. who's basically running away from an abusive husband. Mm-hmm. So, tell us something about her. She's, I said, I described her as as middle class, and clearly she is. But like, she's also sort of like in this sort of weird predicament, I guess. What's her sort of situation when mm. she's left her husband what are her prospects so she's left her husband but she's still married to him which kind of follows her throughout the book um, so she's not officially divorced and she has kind of been raised to be dependent i mean i don't actually mention if she's ever had a job so this is not in the book but my guess is that she hasn't and so she has to become resourceful in a way that she didn't have to in her former life but then she's free, freer. And when they get, when they first get to Lagos, they all live together as a group. Mm-hmm. But they have to start out basically as they're homeless and they mm-hmm. live under a bridge. Mm-hmm. So tell us about that's clearly something that goes that you know that, that is happening on a large scale. So I watched a documentary about people who live under a bridge in Nigeria. It's quite short, about fifteen minutes. It's an internet documentary, and they've lived there for ten years. Also, so they've it's almost um formalized this so he has a wife and he has a daughter and i'm pretty sure the daughter is in school as well so she goes to school from under the bridge and it was just this very interesting idea first of all making your home in this very public space and you know doing little things to mark out your territory and make it private and keep house um so this particular family that lived under the bridge you know they had they they had a bed um, and then the bed had curtains, so that was their own way of kind of making their own space. But they worked. The husband worked. The wife, I think the wife also worked. And it just, they'd just been homeless. But they'd been homeless for 10 years, but, I, <laughs> but that, the bridge was also their home. Yeah, I was going to say, they're not strictly yes. homeless. That's their home. That's, yes, and like, you know, they had, there were other people who were homeless there in the area, and they knew each other, and they yeah. had a sort of community as well. So... Yeah, it's not it's not the same solitary type of homelessness that you can witness here. You're just sitting alone on a street corner and it's just you. There was like a community of people without a formal roof over their heads. There's two other main characters in the book. <laughs> so Chief Sandaya, who's a, um, until very recently, the Honourable Minister of Education for the Federal Republic of Nigeria. Mm-hmm. Um, and like through him, you look at the... Um, Corrupt political system and the machinations of mm. of that, and um, but interestingly, he's also somebody who you know he's come to power through being in a party that's come from like one of the sort of tribal grouping parties, mm. and was presumably at some point a lot more you know radical, mm. and they were hunted by the police and stuff. Mm. But now he's in power, and that sort of corrupted him. Mm. So with Chisander, I guess what I wanted to explore is how difficult it is to remain idealistic in Nigeria. So there's two parts of his job. Okay, so there's the corruption, but then there's also 
the tedium of the bureaucracy mm-hmm. and of the fact that there's so many levels and so many layers and if you have a po- and if even if you have you know the brightest most burning idea you know if there's nobody to implement it then you know it just remains on paper so there's that aspect of politics in Nigeria which I often which I, which doesn't often get talked about kind of the just the banal, so forget corruption, forget people stealing millions of dollars and buying houses in you know, Regent's Park. It's just more the tedium and the bureaucracy and all the paperwork that makes change very difficult. Even forgetting corruption, even if corruption disappeared, you would still have civil service departments that were way too large for just any reasonable work to be done. Um, so you have that. So that's one aspect I wanted to explore. And then on the other hand, I did also want to explore the kind of his idealism and how it trickles away and then how it perhaps gets reignited by meeting the group. And the other thing that you know, is obviously um, a feature of, of Nigerian life is all the various different groups and you've got like, you know, he's from the, the, the Yoruba mm-hmm. and um, lots of people that are familiar from, of Nigeria from abroad will, mm-hmm. will know about, you know, various groups in different parts of the country, mm-hmm. and obviously the, uh, you know, Christians and Muslims living mm-hmm. in Nigeria as well, and that's not necessarily that successful in other areas of Nigeria, but mm-hmm. in Lagos, yeah. they're sort of forced to live yeah. together and cohabit in a, in a better way, huh? Yeah, I definitely agree. So I think I was having this conversation with someone today about how so there is religious and ethnic violence in Nigeria, especially religious, Boko Haram, so on and so forth, Chipok girls, etc. But in Lagos, this is just not the case. I've never witnessed this, I've never experienced it. So there's a lot of people just living side by side. And ethnicity, I would say, is a bigger fault line than religion, actually. Because sometimes, even though people have different religions, they're still of the same ethnicity. Mm. So, for example, my mom is Yoruba and she's Christian, but she has family members, sisters, siblings, for example, who are Muslim. But they're the same ethnicity. Whereas she is married to my dad, who is Igbo, different ethnicity, same religion. And sometimes that difference in ethnicity can be more of a problem <laughs> than the difference in religion. But yeah, I think Lagos manages to make it work somehow. And I think people are really caught up in the hustle of Lagos, in making money, in making it big, that, you know, these other identity markers, they're important and they do sometimes flare up. But, like, people are chasing the dollar. <laughs> so just just one other last member of the, of the ensemble. Yes, then, of course, Ahmed. Ahmed Bakari, yes. who is... Um, He's the founder of a small, struggling newspaper in Nigeria, mm-hmm. Journal. Um, tell us something about him. So, when did he enter? I think he was a late. He was a late entry. This is at the point where the boat was thinking with characters, and he was just really interesting. And I find him the most interesting character because again, I suppose again, I'm exploring this idea of idealism and. Idealism that makes no financial sense. So you know, he's running a newspaper. It is failing for his principles, and you know he's refusing to to compromise in any way. But at the same time, he's also from a family that is probably complicit in the failings mm-hmm. that he spent so much time railing against in his newspaper. And it's that um, I think I just found it interesting, like the children of these politicians that they spend so much stolen money educating abroad and giving them these 
gilded lifestyles. Obviously, not all, but some of them grow to despise what they have come from because then access to this outside world where you know Nigeria is now viewed as corrupt you know, and all of these things makes you then go home and start asking uncomfortable questions. So yes, I wanted to explore that with his character. It does it does sort of let on as an aside at one point that he has sort of like anonymously sold a story of his father to the to the guardian, mm-hmm. but at the same time he's obviously sure that his father's name exactly. will protect him exactly. and he can do what he likes. Exactly. Basically. Yeah, maybe it's the hypocrisy of idealism. And how you have to have a certain privilege to have that level of idealism in Nigeria. Maybe. We should say something about the press in general. So you obviously are able to, I mean, you use the, the, the character of, of the chief to, you know, to comment on the politics, but also then more directly by having a character who, you know, who's, mm. a, who's a newspaper editor. What is the, what is the press like? Um, so the press, I was having this discussion about the press and press freedom. So, under our current president, journalists have been arrested, but he's a former military dictator, and this is a new chapter. So, under democracy so far, the press has been relatively free, but um, they've also... Journalists are not paid very well. So then, if you don't have a lot of money, that can be as much of a restraint as someone holding a gun to your head because you want to publish favourable stories to politicians so you can get a little bit of a brown envelope or you can get... Um, so you're free to say what you like in theory but it will have financial consequences um, or it could have serious financial consequences and that can be an inhibitor. You mentioned earlier the, the sort of reception in Nigeria, some of the reviews of The Spider King with Daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you anticipate this book going down considering that you know some of the the content is is critical of what so you know fictional government but you know obviously the government well so far so good so a lot of nigerians on the internet really like the cover so that's a good start it's they, a great cover that's a good start i mean they haven't read what's in between the covers yet so things might go downhill um but i hope not i think i have a lot of inside jokes in here that only Nigerians will get. Um, and it's okay, I don't think it takes away from your enjoyment of the novel if you're not Nigerian. I just think it adds an extra layer if you are. And I hope they like it. I hope they feel it is an accurate, but also a heightened version of Lagos. Um, just one more thing for me, and then I'll, we'll get you to, to, to read a bit of the book. What's next? What are you working on now? So I have started my next novel. I was saying to my friend, it's like a reflex. So like, there's never much downtime. <laughs> so it's not even at a stage where I even know what it's about. But it's just kind of, I've just gotten used to just always having something ticking in the background. So I have started. It's in the first person. And it's told from the perspective of a woman. And because most of this book I spent in Chike's head. And I'm always, I mean, obviously, I'm men as well. In fact, my three, my biggest characters, Chief Sanda, Yotiki, and Ahmed, they're all men. And I've said a lot, or I've said very often, that oh, it's just like, there's no difference, you know, it's just thoughts, you know, there are no male thoughts or female thoughts. But I must say, when I started this next book in a female voice, it felt like I straightened up. It felt like I've been walking, you know how you, like, I've been walking around with my head bent and I've kind of gotten used to writing in that, to living in that posture. And then I entered this kind of female character voice and I was like, oh, you know, something has clicked back into place. 
It feels nice to be in a woman's head. So yeah, actually, I'm excited about the next project. It's different from Welcome to Lagos. So, okay, it's a read about Okay, I will read from... So this section is Ahmed Bakare, the journalist, the struggling newspaper owner. He has gone to have lunch with his parents. Ahmed's parents' marriage was strong, incongruously so. His father read widely, understood the foreign stock market, conversed with ease. His mother and her friends wore matching clothes to weddings. His parents were rarely seen outside together, but in the domestic space... They were courteous, loving even, attentive to how many spoons of sugar and how many cubes of ice. It worked for them, especially after the death of his sister. Ahmed wished she were alive, if only to shift the weight of his parents' disappointment. He had left his good job in England. He was not yet married. He insisted on carrying on with this ridiculous newspaper project. The media mogul has arrived, his father said, as he walked into their living room. What will he drink? Once a month, for his mother's sake, he spent a Sunday afternoon with both of them. Bola, stop teasing him, his mother said. I'm not. I read the paper. I saw the piece on Chief Momo's alleged oil rig. Why did it take you so long to get to it? We were gathering material. Is that so? Perhaps you should rename yourself the Stale Journal. Bola, leave the boy alone. I'm just giving him some paternal advice. If he's going to try and embarrass my friends, at least be the first to the story. What are you drinking? Star, we only have Guinness. Guinness then, I'll get it. No, you're a guest now, his father said. We see you once a month, so we have to be on our best behaviour, or your mother says you'll stop coming. Right, lunch should be ready. Let's not keep the newspaper man waiting. As always, there was too much food. The table was heaped for guests that would never arrive. His dead sister her imaginary husband, and their six obese children. The chairs were stiff-backed with wrought copper arms, uncomfortable to rest on. On the walls were paintings, trite European landscapes in greens and blues, and in the corner an aquarium bubbled softly, the pale fish darting behind its glass walls. He would have preferred to eat in the living room, but his mother liked to create an occasion, complete with gold cloth napkins and heavy silver cutlery, brought from storage each month. So I've been talking to Chibundu Onazo. We've been talking about Welcome to Lagos, her second novel, which is out now from Favour and Favour. Chibundu, thank you so much for coming in and sharing thank it with me. Thank you for having me. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I'm Emma-Jane Unsworth. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Alexandra Kleeman is a New York City-based writer of fiction and non-fiction and a PhD candidate in rhetoric at UC Berkeley. Her fiction has been published in The New Yorker and The Paris Review, among others, and non-fiction essays and reportage have appeared in Harper's, Tin House, M Plus One and The Guardian. She is the author of the short story collection Intimations and now a debut novel, You Too Can Have a Body Like Mine, which we're going to discuss today. Alexandra, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much for having me. Tell me how you would describe the novel. Um, I guess I'd describe the novel. It, it, it depends. When you talk about it with people, you give a really short version sometimes. You give a slightly longer version sometimes. So on the one hand, this novel is um, about body image, about food, about uh, the way that we've tied our identity as people to our consumer identity, and also about female-female jealousy, um, desires that go unfulfilled, things like that. But uh, when I began writing it, the main thing I was thinking of was about character change. Like uh, One instructor once told me that there are two types of stories in the world, and one is a stranger comes to town, and the other is a person leaves home. And I thought, how interesting would it be if we could combine these stories? Someone leaves home, and they return, but they're no longer the same person they once were. So when did this story start then? So you did a um, creative writing program somewhere, didn't you? As well? Right. Um, I did an MFA at Columbia. I did it after I had done um, a few years of coursework in critical theory and science studies at Berkeley. So all I had done um, uh, until a couple of years ago, I think all I had done with my life was be in schools in different places, studying slightly different subjects. <laughs> so um, the real world is still very exciting to me. And this book began, actually, uh, before I started the MFA program, um, I started a draft of it, which was more heavily based on the Candy Cat character. It was about half and half. Um, and I wrote that draft into a notebook by hand that I lost on the beach. So <laughs> when I started over again, it was the same sort of drive behind the novel, but it was um, it obviously had to take on a different shape because there's nothing more depressing than trying to remember exactly something that you've already written, you know, and write it out again. 
Well, the, the Candy Cat character does does survive into this novel, but in a, in a smaller form, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But your three main characters. So the book is based around three main characters, and they are called A, B, and C. Less significant characters in the story do have fuller names, but the three main characters, we only know them by these initials. Why did you decide to do that? Well, I think that when I'm reading a book, personally, uh, a full name often pushes me away from the character a little bit, because I'm thinking like, oh, how did they come up with that name? Like, What is that name supposed to evoke in me? Do they know someone with this name? Do they know someone with part of this name? And I've just always had a lot of trouble taking on the sort of authorial power to give names like this and, and pretend that they are inevitable and natural. And I also feel that when you're close to people, their name weirdly sort of drops off them. Maybe this is partially because my, my husband's also named Alex, so we don't really use each other's names very much. His representation in my mind is dense and it's varied and it's full, um, but it's mostly it's sensory motor, it's his appearance, his smell, his, how I feel about him, things about his personality that sort of become less linguistic, I guess. So um, I thought that because I have a small enough characters, a small enough group of characters that I'm working with, I could probably get away with making the reader sort of triangulate between my main character A and the two characters who take significant roles in her life, as though they were so close to the reader that you almost didn't need to know their whole autobiographical background you go further than that you don't really describe what the characters look like to that great an extent beyond the fact that well i'll get you to describe who the three are i suppose we should do that first of all before we talk about before we talk about what they look like right right my main character is a she's sort of uh in the place that the reader sits during most of the novel she works as a proofreader though that doesn't come up all that much she um has her life kind of together at the beginning she has a boyfriend c um who's kind of a lays about a graphic designer and a porn addict um who loves her i guess but doesn't spend too much time or thought thinking about it or acting on it <laughs> um and then her roommate b who is sort of a um a mirror version of a she she admires a she admires the way a knows how to do sort of basic feminine things like put on makeup like dress this way like hold up a relationship and as she tries to learn how to do these things herself um as she cuts her hair to the same length that a's hair is as she um begins wearing makeup getting a to give her a makeover we see sort of a's discomfort at how fragile and mimicable these sorts of cultural codes that she's based her identity on are if you define yourself apart by the way you dress, you know, it's not impossible for someone else to dress that way if they have the money or the access. The question is, I think, where identity should be rooted in order to keep it safe and to keep it uniquely your own. Yeah, and this brings in what I was saying before, in that we don't really know what these characters look like beyond the fact that people talk about how they look like other people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> This closeness of A and B, this sort of roommate situation, is is this something that you've experienced? Yeah, it, it's something I've experienced. Um, I think that in female friendships, there's often, if not an element of competition, an element of blending. You sort of show the esteem that you hold your friend in by claiming that you want to be more like them, telling them what they do is good, and sometimes by 
being more like them. It's easier to um, share space really closely as a female than it is to maintain good boundaries, I think. I wanted to talk about when the novel is set, because it's clearly a contemporary time. There's mobile phones, but there's never really any sort of talk about the internet, for instance, certainly not social media. And it's interesting that in a, in a novel that's about how people become connected to each other, it's almost like you've deliberately avoided that. Yeah, that that is correct. I mean, um, on the one hand, I feel like the dynamics are so different with the internet and social media than they are with TV and the sort of inherited forms of connection that we have. It would have been a lot to try to describe both of them and still progress with the plot. Because <laughs> I think that um, this book, when I was writing it, I was already walking a line between like describing the world or rather the media world and describing people actually in that world. <laughs> it, it's a difficult thing to balance. And um, what interests me about the internet is completely different from what interests me about television. I think that Television is so compelling to me because it's the space that you don't really get to choose. You can move around within it, you can change the channels, you can search through them. But TV, it is what it is. It beams itself out to everyone at the same time, same place. And there's something comforting about that, I think. Like, it's more like a monument than something ephemeral. And you know that when you're turning on the TV and watching it, you're sharing that experience with lots of other people that you have no access to and no knowledge of. I also think that the way that television affects your attention is really different from the way the internet does. Like one thing that really surprised me when I went back to watching TV after boycotting it for many years is how incredibly easy it is to watch TV. You just sit there and it watches itself almost. You don't really have to do anything else to stay entertained. Like, it does all the work for you. And you can accept the, the experience that it's giving you as is. With the internet, it feels a little bit more like the internet doesn't fully exist without you. You decide what shows up on your screen. You decide where you go. You make your own experience of the internet. And the internet is so much vaster <laughs> than even the largest cable package, you know. So I think there's a lot more agency involved in the internet. There's a more distributed sort of information authority. And there's a different feeling, too. You feel like you can get lost down a wormhole, um, an internet rabbit hole or something, but you don't feel as much like you're in contact with something big and other because it's so particulate, you know? And I think that that means that the internet is sort of a model for maybe the direction culture is going to go in, but right now I think we're sort of on the edge of an old culture and a new culture with the old culture still represented by TV, which hangs on um, not so much in my own viewing habits or the viewing habits of my friends, you know, it's hard to find someone who has a real TV hooked up to cable now where I live. But where my parents live in Colorado and right out there, you walk through the neighborhood and you see the light of TVs on in house after house, a sort of blue flickering light. And that adds to the feeling, I think, that there is this world or this culture that is big and connected and um, also oddly unknown um, to me, even as a pretty well-informed young American. And also the landscape itself feels sort of like dislocated and disconnected. So when A, she, she walks backwards and forwards to work 
um, the only places. It's like a, a edge land landscape of big box warehouses and things. And really, the only there's only a, a number of places that are identified by name. It could be anywhere. And indeed, later in the novel, when she gets lost herself, she basically goes off and becomes lost. We'll talk about where she goes in a while but at that point you really feel that dislocation because you know we don't know where she is because you've not really located where she is in in an identifiable place but the one place that is identifiable in the novel is wally's the supermarket chain or a supermarket is probably um too small a word for what wally's actually is tell us what wally's is well um wally's is kind of a, a mega market I grew up again in Colorado where we have a lot of big box stores. And um, one thing that interested me when I went to do um, artist residencies in other places like Nebraska or something was how comforting it was to be able to find a Walmart, something that I had always sort of looked down upon uh, when I had more choices. But just uh, Walmart brings in a lot of produce in sort of rural areas, even rural areas with a lot of agriculture. You know, they're growing biofuel corn, and they're growing um, soybeans and other things that you can't like reach out, pick up and eat. So I loved the sameness of Wally's. It felt like a portal back to um, someplace much more familiar to me, someplace that I went to when I was at home. So I can really understand the emotional impulse behind chaining and franchising and recreating familiar spaces over and over again <laughs> to make the world less unfamiliar, I suppose. Wally's is in some ways a lot like a big supermarket or a big Walmart. Um, it has food, it has tools, it has other products like that. But I've sort of, but I pushed some surreal aspects into it as well. So um, one thing about Wally's is that you can never go straight to the location you remember a product being in. Um, at night, they rearrange all the shelves, which causes customers to take longer paths when finding their item and makes them buy more along the way. <laughs> Another is um, that the Wally's employees, uh, which we also call Wally's or Wally heads, um, they wear these large foam masks, like sort of a Disney character mascot mask over their face, so you can't tell what they look like underneath. You can't really tell if you've already encountered this employee before, if they know you, if they recognize you. You can't tell if you're asking someone new for help. They really are sort of forcibly merged into one by completely obscuring their face. What else? Oh, and, and then uh, maybe the biggest thing that these uh, Wally stores are actually one arm of a larger sort of religious organization slash corporation that is um, sort of engaging with manufacturing and with selling, but from also a religious spiritual standpoint. And my main character, A, ends up uh, getting drawn into their orbit through her wanderings at the grocery store. So this is the, called the conjoined eaters, this codes. But before we get to them, another aspect, as it turns out, which is which is part of the codes, is the uh, the aforementioned candy cat, who's the the mascot of candy cakes, a, a confectionery product seemingly made of plastic that um a becomes obsessed by the ads and the ads are these great almost like itchy and scratchy type bizarre surreal violent adverts that she becomes obsessed with tell us something about candy cat and candy cakes yeah candy cat is 
sort of an amalgamation of Itchy and Scratchy and um, Wiley Coyote and the Trix Rabbit and all of the cartoon characters I watched as a kid who seemed to be going through some sort of actual suffering. I could tell as an audience member, I was not supposed to respond to their suffering as suffering. I was supposed to find it funny, you know, and always believe that they would bounce back with their magical cartoon bodies and, and be exactly as before. But I thought it would be really interesting to create a character who goes through these same sufferings, but never ends up bouncing back to quite his original shape and form. So um, a character that grows steadily hungrier and steadily thinner, just slightly, over the course of the commercials. One who, uh, even in the context of selling and of sort of bolstering the product, clearly has something else going on, something wrong. (laughs) So as A watches him in commercial after commercial, she starts um, first feeling for him more than she should, and then um, sort of identifying with him, which is part of what leads her on her quest to find candy cakes herself, which are not really as plentiful as they should be in her area. And this is because the, the supply of them is being tightly controlled by this cult, which it turns out... I mean, the cult sells itself as being an organisation where you can get away from yourself and you can get away from the bland consumer capitalism of the outside world. Although, of course, it turns out that they're rather central to that. Yeah, definitely. And and another important thing about the cult to me, I think, is that uh, the cult offers you authoritative, decisive advice on what you should or should not do, what you should or should not eat, what is or is not good for you. And I think that um, this also gets a, a sort of desire that I feel myself, you know, as nutritional advice changes and as you try to make decisions about what to put into your body based on um, information you feel is incomplete. Just having someone or some entity tell you with with great authority that this should not be eaten this should i think would be appealing (laughs) and they play on kind of that desire to improve to do right to do better to make yourself something more or purer or better or more like yourself and they offer you well instead of what they claim they're offering you they offer you something else they offer you a more standard cult experience (laughs) Listed to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny, and today I'm talking to Alexandra Kleeman, and we're talking about her novel, You Too Can Have a Body Like Mine. Part of their programme is to, as you said, control what you eat. They feed everybody these candy cakes, which are not nutritionally uh, very adequate. And so as part of losing yourself, losing your sort of personality into the cult, people are literally, you know, starving. A's journey is of like a societal and cultural starvation as well, but also literally bodily. She starves over the course of this book, as she's seen the candy cat do in in the adverts. And I want to talk about the ideas of, I guess, just like body dysmorphia and sort of anorexia that are obviously playing around here. And just like obsession with 
what we put on our bodies you already mentioned about you know being sold like makeup and and products but also just what we put inside our bodies in terms of food and things how we're told constantly what to eat as you, as you've already mentioned let's sort of just talk about this idea of i mean i guess the idea of starvation as sort of control over that right i mean i think that more than anorexia um, the book sort of talks about this disorder that psychologists are calling orthorexia now. It's defined as um, the desire to eat right, I think, to eat correctly. And I first came across the term when I was um, writing an article on fruitarians, so uh, a community of people who eat um, only raw fruit and some vegetables. So um, they believe that cooking food makes food uh, carcinogenic and healthy. Um, they believe that it's wrong to consume the body of a living organism sometimes, so that fruit is the only thing you can take off from a plant without harming the plant. You know, it's made for that. And just sort of watching these debates go on within the community about what should or should not be eaten. Can you use salt? Can you use olive oil? Is olive oil bad for you? I felt like the fear they had of things that might be bad for them was a fear that I sort of encounter daily, too, when you think about, um, am I going to eat these processed cookies because I want to eat them? No, I shouldn't eat them. Uh, I heard that processed foods are bad. We make all these decisions based on a felt goodness or badness in the food or in the products we put in our skin, but we're never 100% sure about them because they could change later on. So I think the sort of state of anxiety and sort of constant openness to new information that this leaves you in is um, something that I satirize in the book, or maybe not satirize, but heighten. There's, um, thinking about the, the fruitarians, there is like a, a recurring image of an orange throughout the book, included on, on the front cover, but more, more fun, I think I'd like you to tell us about Michael, the veal guy, who I think is a, a brilliant creation. <laughs> so um, Michael the Veal guy is the guy who A first sees on a, a talk show program, and he's talking about how he became a criminal. He became a veal stealer. He got the way, I think, through watching a news report on veal farming and seeing all the calves crated up, trapped, um, kept still to keep their flesh white, uh, and he felt something for them. But he knew that as one man, he couldn't really do anything to save the calves himself. So he um, decided he would go to his local store and liberate some of the cutlets um, and felt so feels so good to him to do that, that he does it again and again. And paradoxically, as he takes more of the cutlets, the veal section grows because there's more demand. So his attempt to eliminate veal or free veal results in more veal being created and packaged and shipped. Uh, sort of into the far point where he begins eating it because he doesn't have any place to store it. So he becomes a major veal eater, and then he gets in a physical altercation with an employee who's trying to stop him from taking veal. So um, <laughs> later on in the book, A is going through the grocery store, and she sees that he's the new spokesperson for veal products. And I think like <laughs> it's an absurdity, but it's also um, about how absurd it is or can be as individual consumers to try to act upon this large and sturdy and extended network that is like the supply chain and, and consumerism and uh, all of these things that are larger than you and can only be affected by you maybe in a strange or ironic or um, ultimately contradictory way. I want to talk about who 
some of your influences were in in the writing of this book. I mean, it, I've seen it described as as a postmodern novel, and and therefore compared to you know Don Delilo and Pinchon and. And I was reminded of somebody like George Saunders as well, who I really love. I've also seen it, you know, written often in in the various reviews I've read of the book that, of course, all of these novelists are men. That sort of postmodern novel about this sort of near future dystopian society are often written by men about men's concerns. And therefore, this is refreshing to read a novel of this sort written by a woman that's about sort of like, you know, women's daily lives and body issues. So bearing that in mind, you know, was that at the forefront when you were writing this? And were there women writers who were an influence that you were able to bring to bear on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, many of the most significant writers for me personally have been women. Um, Yoko Tawada is a huge one, and Joy Williams is another huge one. I I feel like um, these writers have a sort of internal focus, like uh, they're great at tracking tiny seismic events in the psychologies of their characters, Um, and I love that. I think that that's ultimately um, the plane on which characters are built and um, characters change. They change in micro events, not in in huge sweeping events. So um, they were a really big craft influence on me. But I also, I love these big sprawling novels that feel empowered to grab everything they're interested in and men sticking inside them, you know, like DeLillo and to a lesser extent Pynchon are like that for me. And um, it's not so much about replicating that form as giving myself the same permissions that I think that those authors take on, I think. I think that um, on the one hand, as a female writer, you do feel, you hear a version of the criticism that you feel could be levied against you for stepping outside of what's usually done as you're writing. But I think society will give you permission to write what you want to write. I think that a lot of it is about giving yourself that permission. I've been talking to Alexandra Kleeman. We've been talking about her novel, You Too Can Have a Body Like Mine. It's out now from Fourth Estate. Alexandra, thank you so much for sharing it with me. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 